Hello and welcome to another episode of Chemically Speaking, the official podcast of the Royal Australian Chemical Institute. My name is Dr. Matt Griffith and today we'll be discussing the chemistry of chocolate. Before starting today, we would like to acknowledge the Darkenjung people, the traditional custodians of the unceded lands on which Chemically Speaking was produced. We pay our respects to them and to their elders, past and present. We also extend those respects to the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, wherever you are listening. The RACI acknowledges Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's long-standing scientific knowledge, traditions, and their continuing contributions to chemistry today. We'd like to remind everyone that the RACI National Congress is now less than a month away. We're all looking forward to seeing old friends and making new acquaintances in Brisbane from the 3rd to the 8th of July. And there's still time to register. Just head over to the RACI website, www.raci.org.au, for all the information. While you're browsing the site, why not add a backslash chemically speaking to the web address to go to our podcast page and leave us some feedback or get in touch. And of course, please jump on your favourite podcast platform and subscribe to us to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. Now, let's move on to today's episode. There's nothing quite like chocolate. Its delicious velvety flavours have been getting humans hooked for thousands of years. In fact, when we bite into a decadent piece of chocolate, we can do so secure in the knowledge that we're embracing ancient wisdom. Long before the Industrial Revolution, the Amazons were using raw cacao pods to help treat sore stomachs and kidney issues. As it turns out, we now know that chocolate is actually rich in neurotransmitters and healthy antioxidant compounds that assist with memory, appetite, sleep, and even pain relief. But let's face it, most of us know that chocolate is not the healthiest of treats. We eat it just because we crave it. That's probably because chocolate also contains stimulants, such as caffeine, and even an amphetamine-like substance that's known as the bliss molecule. Now, if you're starting to appreciate the complexity of chocolate as a chemical mixture, take a moment to appreciate the intricate process involved in turning it from beans on a tree into the bar on the shelf. So, what really goes on when making your chocolate? Whether it's roasting, fermenting, blending or refining, the process is driven at each step by chemistry. Whether it's the shine and snap of a tempered chocolate from a MasterChef dessert challenge or the ruby chocolate made popular on the Great British Bake Off, the flavour and texture profiles of chocolate come back to the fundamental principles of chemistry. At the end of the day, whether we like the sweetness of white chocolate, the creaminess of milk chocolate or the bitter tinge of dark chocolate may even be beyond our control. The latest research is uncovering links between our genetic coding and taste preferences, which means a lot of the big chocolate manufacturers are starting to work more and more closely with chemists in their search for the perfect product. In today's episode, we'll search under the wrapper and try to demystify the process of developing different chocolates and the reasons behind our physical and emotional response to chocolate. We'll talk to supramolecular chemists and sensory scientists to uncover how chocolate is made, what makes it special, and how our physical and emotional responses are linked to the foods that we eat. Our first guest today is Dr. Nathan Kailar, who is a senior lecturer in chemistry at the University of Tasmania. Nathan's work focuses on supramolecular chemistry and how molecules can be designed to assemble into larger structures 
by directing the chemical forces involved. He has been awarded a Royal Commission for the Exhibition of 1851 Science Research Fellowship from the University of Oxford, an Alexander von Humboldt Research Fellowship from the Philippe's Universitat Marburg, and a Discovery Early Career Research Award from the ARC. With a passion for communicating chemistry to the public, Nathan's work is helping to bring the role of chemistry into focus across a range of interesting areas. Nathan, it's a pleasure to have you with us today on Chemically Speaking. Thanks for having me. Your love of science was captured at an early age through a public school visit by a CSIRO researcher. What was it about this visit that got you so interested in science? So the scientist who visited from CSIRO was a parent from the school that I was attending, and they did a number of chemical displays, which involved things that were quite visual. So there were fire experiments, there were color change experiments, and it really captured my imagination in part because it was someone that I could connect to as a member of the school community, um, but also the the visual and, and interactive nature of what they presented. Fantastic. So we've got this early exposure to the love of science, but when was it that you knew you wanted to focus on chemistry for a career? Chemistry was one of my favorite subjects at, at high school. So it was something that I was interested in studying at university. I tried lots of different things when I first started at university. And it was once I got into sort of second year and got really excited by things like transition metals uh, and ultimately doing research in honors that led me to decide that chemistry was the pathway for me. Fantastic. And so we've captured your love of chemistry and you've then gone on to do further research with a PhD in chiral compounds of arsenic and phosphorus, but then moved into a different area to what you currently research. So can you tell us a little bit about how you developed this passion for supramolecular chemistry? Yeah. So having worked with arsenic and phosphorus chemistry, I was able to do a little side project looking at some slightly unusual collections of antimony and phosphorus atoms. And that really led me down a path of looking at how these smaller subunits could build up and interact to give these bigger assemblies, which is really you know, one, of the, one of the foundations of supramolecular chemistry. For those of us who might be unfamiliar, how would you describe this field of supramolecular chemistry? So supramolecular chemistry is often described as chemistry beyond the molecule. So rather than just focusing on how the molecule is made or the properties of the molecule, how can it be interacted with other molecules to either build up some sort of bigger assembly, self-assembly is a term that's often applied in supramolecular chemistry, but really it goes a lot beyond that in that we can think about how molecules are interacting both with one another, say in a solution or in a crystal, um, even to how drugs interact with proteins in the body. Uh, or how, say, flavor works in your mouth. It sounds like such a versatile field. And now you've recently written an article for the conversation on some of the chemistry behind the creation of chocolate. So how can this lens of supramolecular chemistry be applied to an everyday material like chocolate that we perhaps don't think of as a traditional chemical that we might study in our lab? So a lot of the properties of chocolate that lead to our enjoyment of it arise from crystals that are part of that molecular structure of the chocolate. And thinking about how those fat molecules interact with one another, so the interactions beyond those molecules, is really crucial to, to that experience. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit and follow this molecule to crystal approach that we've been discussing. 
maybe if we start with what the key materials are that we need in order to make chocolate. So chocolate uses a relatively small number of ingredients. We have the cocoa beans, we have sugar, we have milk solids, flavorings, and then emulsifiers to make sure it all stays together. A lot of the chemistry comes through the fermentation and the roasting of the cocoa beans, but the bigger properties that we'll see are generally from the fats that are released when those beans are ground up. And as you continue to grind, the more fats are released, you get a smaller particle size. And that is important because you want the fats for the nice feel on the mouth, but also you don't want the cocoa mass to be uh, gritty. So you need Mm -hmm. to have it ground up fine enough to the order of sort of 15 microns to be able to have a nice smooth feel in your mouth. So grinding the beans releases those those fats. We get a liquid known as cocoa liquor. That can be blended with our other ingredients to give us our melted chocolate, which can then be set into the product. Fantastic. And so as we move through these different chemical reactions, the fermentation and the roasting process, our target, of course, is to get that beautiful shiny bar of chocolate that snaps cleanly and melts in your mouth. Is this version of a chocolate bar just one type of end product, one type of crystal structure that we can make from this process? A lot of people, especially chemists, will have been familiar with a recrystallization process that they may have done in their undergraduate or some other studies, even even children doing the RACI's crystal growing competition. You, you take the mixture, you dissolve up the molecule you want to crystallize, and then over time it will set. With chocolate, it can set into about six different forms. And if you cool it rapidly, you'll get a mixture of those forms. And these different forms are known as polymorphs. So temperature is the crucial factor here. When we go to form our solid chocolate, we're going to do that from a liquid state. If we just melt everything and cool it down really fast, we have no control over the form of chocolate that we're going to get. So we need to be a lot more controlled than that. And we do that by increasing the temperature so that we can melt away the less desirable polymorphs to be left with just the the single polymorph that's the most favorable. Uh, We could also add that at this point. Then when you cool it back down, that chocolate is acting as a seed, as as a sort of directing structure, which will influence the way the rest of the fats uh, are formed into the crystalline structure. Fantastic. And so I guess sometimes on these cooking shows, we see this process of tempering chocolate and it sounds like they're not doing anything other than what our chemists would know as the familiar recrystallization reaction. Is that a fair statement? It's a very similar idea. So we're taking our impure, if you like, in terms of the crystal form of our chocolate, we're melting those away and then controlling the temperature to make sure we get the seeds of the chocolate crystals we want to help it to form the desirable product. Oh, fantastic. And so I guess the next thing we might want to know is, is the crystal form that we produce this delicious chocolate, is that a stable product or can this chocolate be converted between these different types of crystal structures? So the different polymorphs can interconvert, um, tending towards more stable forms. And in that process, some of the fats are excluded from the structure and you can often see this as the white so-called fat bloom that we get on the surface of the chocolate. And even chocolate that's been formed into the most desirable form 
can over time develop this fat bloom, can have this change in the structure of the of the fats, and um, which is why you should always make sure you eat your chocolate well before the, the best buy date. And if you don't look after it well, if you don't keep it in a nice temperature controlled way, um, or even if you get it moist, have it in a humid environment, then it can cause this, this bloom. I think that's a message that will go down very well at home. Eat your chocolate as quickly as you can. That's right, especially around Easter time. <laughs> important one. Now, for those of us who might be out there listening away and really interested in pursuing this area of chemistry in the future, are there other popular materials or applications driven by these principles of supermolecular chemistry that we might not be aware of? So there's quite a lot. So this idea of using seed crystals as a starting point to get a material you want is applied in things like pharmaceuticals, um, in the creation of, say, solar cells and, and silicon wafers, silicon chips, um, and even remarkably in things like jet turbine engines. There are fan blades that are composed of single crystals of titanium and nickel alloys. So this is pretty remarkable in that you can have a small little crystal that directs the formation of a of a shaped, you know, engineered component of a of a many many component jet engine. Yeah, that is indeed remarkable. Every time we fly, our lives are dependent on these little molecules that have grown in the right direction into the right crystal structure. I think that's an amazing message. It doesn't matter whether you want to build chocolate or be a rocket scientist. We start from the same perspective. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got atoms. You got molecules. You're going to have to put them together. Uh, Nathan, it's been fascinating chatting with you today about this area of chemistry and in particular how we can apply it to materials like chocolate. On behalf of us here at Chemically Speaking, thank you for joining us today and all the very best for your future. Thanks very much. Welcome back to Chemically Speaking. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we're discussing the chemistry of chocolate. Our second guest is Gabrielle Kavalaskaita, who is a sensory scientist doing a joint PhD with the University of Nottingham and the University of Adelaide. Gabby works at the Interface of Chemistry and Biology, developing a number of different confectionery and condiment products in the food industry to make people's vision of a product become a reality through food chemistry. Welcome to Chemically Speaking, Gabby. We're delighted you could join us today. Thanks for having me. You always wanted to be a scientist, but were drawn towards jobs at the interface with products rather than, say, traditional laboratory studies. What was it about sensory science, or perhaps food science in particular, that attracted your interest? Um, yeah, so I think what led me into the field of food science is the fact that it's so relatable. I think no matter where you are in the world, no matter what circumstances, what age you are, no matter what, uh, we will always need to eat. And I think sensory science in particular is the absolute epitome of that. So in sensory science, it's all about understanding the consumer. So you can create a product that you think is perfect in the lab, but if your consumer doesn't like it, it won't sell. That brand won't exist. So um I think we need sensory science and food science for the products to succeed, but also it's all about the consumers. I think it's a combination of two. 
leaving this undergrad degree in food science and going into industry where you find yourself making jams, chocolate and gin for Wilkin and Sons who provide a lot of high-end products to shops throughout the world. What does the life of a food product development researcher look like? What, what do you do in one of your typical days? Um, I think it depends very much on the company. Uh, Wilson and Sons is, or, um, was or is a relatively small business and therefore it's very dynamic and very um, flexible. Because of its size, the actual timeline between hearing the concept uh, or the idea to actually seeing a product on the shelf is very short, it's about a couple of months. So it's very hectic, very dynamic, and therefore no two days used to be the same. Um, but the usual day would be um, involving meeting the marketing team and discussing some ideas and concepts and going into, lo- into the lab to produce some samples, you know, to meet those ideas and concepts. Then um, getting the product approved within the company or with other companies if you're producing for someone else. Um Overlooking production once it goes into the factory. So it's little bits and pieces and also things like talking to the suppliers and sourcing various funky ingredients. It actually sounds like quite a lot of fun, but also at the same time, perhaps a little challenging. Did you ever find it difficult to negotiate or find the right balance between these customers bringing you a design brief for their food? the marketing teams who are pushing you to sell it in a particular way and the legal teams who I'm sure have their views on food safety guidelines and what can and can't actually be done. Did you find it difficult to develop products that both fit the client's wishes and still taste good? So I think you said it really well. Um, Every team within the business um, is driven by a different motivational factor. Uh, Marketing always wants to sell products and um, products that their consumers enjoy, whereas legal and uh, technical teams always, you know, first and foremost want to make sure that the product is safe for consumption and is fit for human consumption. So there's a lot to juggle, but at the same time as a food product developer, you have all these guidelines initially, so you wouldn't make a food product that is unsafe for human consumption. And if you're creating something really funky, I don't know, adding actual gold to your jam or marmalade, you would always check these things with the legal team, with the technical team to make sure that you can do these things first before you you know go on and buy a ton of gold so it's always you know about communicating it's all down to communication right so that actually sounds very rewarding from a problem solving perspective can you tell us some of the most interesting food products that you've been involved with developing and um, so Wilson and Sons has always been about small quirky small batch quirky uh, products uh, all about seasonality so we used to produce some really quirky things and um, some of the really funky ones that I developed were the tomato curd um, I developed mojito curd with actual rum in it we used to have lots and lots of things with um, edible glitter in it and um, jams and marmalades with gold as I mentioned so yeah lots of funky things. Uh, where would someone go to find one of these products that you have developed? Um, so all of these things used to be ordered by kind of higher end um, boutique uh, brands or some you know higher end food halls, so Harvey Nichols or Bottom and Mason, lots of um, various brands. So after making these amazing products for some time, you then decide to jump back into academia and commence a PhD that involves the sensory science of chocolate. Now, just about everyone seems to enjoy chocolate. 
So what is it that contributes to the enjoyment, or in those very rare cases, the repulsion of chocolate? Is it all to do with our physiological responses to taste, or are people genetically predisposed to specific responses? Um, so it's a million-dollar question. I've spent the last four years trying to understand this, and I still haven't got a definite answer. But I think it's a combination, um, combination of things. Firstly, chocolate is highly emotional. Uh, what I mean by that is that we consume chocolate during family celebrations and, you know, Easter and Christmas and birthdays. And if we're having a bad day, we buy a bar of chocolate to reward ourselves. So it's highly, highly emotional, especially associated with positive emotions. And then on the other hand, we have um, genetic predisposition, as you mentioned. We have uh, receptors and how sensitive we are to various tastes. We have people that are very sensitive to sweetness and bitterness. And um, another part of the population can't taste bitterness at all. And all of these things naturally shape our dietary preferences and product preferences. So I'm sure in, even in your food group, you have um, a group of people that, you know, only go for the dark chocolate or only go for the milk chocolate. And, that's, um, and that could be down to their sensitivity uh, or like how their uh, taste receptors work. Or it could be just down to the fact that, you know, that particular brand reminds them of their childhood or their mum or a birthday. So... I think it's a combination of things and also our habits as well. That's very interesting. So you mentioned about bringing up these memories and I guess it's often said that chocolate can make you more content or perhaps make you feel more in love. Is there any validity to this connection between food and our emotions or is it just a sugar high? Um, so essentially any chocolate bar is a ratio of cocoa and sugar and both of these things are highly emotional. Uh, in cocoa, we have mood actives. So these are the compounds that affect our mood and cognition. Um, for example, theobromine or uh, flavanols and various other things. Um, and they affect you the same in the same way as your morning coffee would. Um, so they kind of um, turn you up and make you all hype. Uh, and then on the other hand, we have the sugar, which in our brain is associated with positive um, emotions, happiness, you know, high energy. So it's a combination of things. It depends on the type of chocolate, but does the chocolate make, you know, make us feel things? Definitely. Yes. Oh, that's so fascinating. And you've mentioned this emotional connection we have with chocolate a few times. So how would you measure someone's emotional response to chocolate? So there are various ways to do it. Um, in my particular research, I use standardized questionnaires. Um, they are very straightforward to use. Um, a person just consumes a product and then, you know, rates on the scale how it makes them feel. Um, this is because I work with large groups of consumers and they come from different backgrounds, different countries and so on. So it's a nice standardized way to do it. And it's also quite quick and straightforward. Um, there are other ways as well. You can equally measure uh, physiologically, a phys physiological response by uh, measuring brain activity or heartbeat sweating and so on. So it really depends on uh, what you're trying to achieve and the aims, aims and objective. And so I guess another million dollar question for us, if we try and wrap all of this new knowledge we're gaining into a bow, how can we use these new design insights from food science approaches to create new flavors that maximize the number of consumers who like chocolate? I think because chocolate is so different, it can range from very, very sweet and milky to very dark to, you know, all of these uh, funky fillings that we have and chocolate with berries and so on. You will never get everyone to like the same type of chocolate and that's absolutely fine and um, I don't think we should strive for it. I think 
as brands, um, people or like, you know, marketing teams, we should try and understand what our particular consumer group wants and what makes them satisfied and happy and what makes them to repurchase the, the product. So um, I think it's just understanding your consumer uh, better. And you can do that for various ways, you know, sensory work and you can do home, home use tests by sending new products to consumers to try at home. Um, you can do focus groups and monitor behavior in shops and so on. So there's various ways to do it. Now, given that you work with such a popular consumer product and we're starting to discover some really innovative things about the links between genetics and our taste preferences, can you give us an insight into how interested today's companies are in understanding consumers at this genetic level in order to target their product development? Yeah, so to answer this shortly, very interested, um, but there's also very uh, little understanding of how much of a role our DNA plays in, in terms of our product preferences and how we consume the product. Um, because I'm working in this field, so particularly with human DNA, I can sense that there is a lot of similar work going on in the background and from other companies as well, um, but because of the nature um, due to the nature of this research, it is highly confidential. So, yeah. Uh, I see. We totally, we had to have a shot, didn't we? This genetic targeting is one emerging trend, and I suppose hopefully we'll get the secrets revealed to us in good time. But what are some of the other trends in the chocolate industry at the moment? What are people interested in? Uh, so chocolate consumers, and I think consumers overall in the world, are becoming more and more aware and concerned about some of the issues that we have in the um, food chains, such as sustainability and ethical issues and child labor, climate change, various others. So I think that's really pushing the brands to introduce some of the products that are more ethical, sustainable, and so on. So I think that's one of the trends. Um, for the same reason, we're also seeing the increase in popularity of small batch kind of artisan chocolate makers, really, you know, micro, micro scale. Um, and that is because those people know exactly every bean that goes into their chocolate product. Um, and there's also the good old, what can we add into this product that makes it quirky? So last week I saw a chocolate with edible insects. So it's always that, you know, just the usual, let's mix this chocolate with them. Right. What advice would you give to someone who is interested in coming into this industry and studying chocolate and the connection to sensory science? I think the best advice is don't follow anyone else's path. Just find your own. Um, there is no way of doing things or best way of doing things. And people go through such different journeys and, you know, it's all about enjoying their path. I have some colleagues that are doing their PhDs in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they're loving it. And on the other hand, I have... Um, or some of the most knowledgeable people in the industry that I know have never gone to university. So um, this isn't a race, and I, I just think we need to embrace our own journey. Yeah, and I think you can't, as you mentioned early on, you really can't lose when you go into studying chocolate. It's going to find out some interesting stuff. Fantastic. Well, Gabby, it's been a fascinating chat with you today. On behalf of us here at Chemically Speaking, can we thank you once again for joining us and sharing your insights? Thanks for having me. It's lovely to see you, Matt. 
Well, it turns out that identifying what makes chocolate taste like chocolate is quite complicated. As Nathan highlighted, each different type of chocolate brings together unique flavor and aroma compounds that affect the taste and consistency, including the origin of the cacao, roasting conditions, and the processing techniques. All of these features combine to produce a crystalline structure that gives chocolate its characteristic properties. We were also able to learn some fascinating new research directions in food chemistry, where sensory scientists like Gabby are starting to uncover that genetics may play a role in our physical and emotional responses to the different flavors in chocolate, and how the industry is moving towards sustainable production chains with a huge focus on flavor profiles and knowledge of your ingredients. And on the topic of chocolate preferences, the results of our Twitter poll are in, revealing that 55% of you prefer your chocolate dark, with 42% enjoying milk chocolate best, and just 4% of you reaching for the white chocolate. It looks like a majority of our chemistry enthusiasts enjoy a little bitterness in their chocolate. One sure way to investigate your genetic disposition to chocolate's different crystal structure is to buy a good quality block, break off a piece, and let it slowly melt away in your mouth. That experiment, which is one we can highly recommend, is definitely one you can try safely at home. You may even like to repeat it a few times, just to make sure you obtain accurate results. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Chemically Speaking. Thanks again to our team of Dr. Rosie Young, Vina Kelvan, Jesse Mullen, Andrew Carmichael, and Isabel Weston for their hard work putting everything together. Don't forget to subscribe to listen to future episodes on your favorite podcast platform, or better yet, jump onto Twitter, where our handle is at chempodcast, or head over to our website, www.raci.org.au backslash chemically speaking, and get in touch with us to suggest a topic you'd like us to cover in the future. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and we'll be back next month with a new episode brought to you live from the RACI National Congress. Until then, I hope your days are brightened by a little tweak of chemistry.